Right, name, name this uh, this song lyric. What what song is this from? Um, you got mud on your face. What song are we singing? Queen. <laughs> we were right. Very good. Good job. You've been well discipled <laughs> in the ways of American sports stadium rock anthems. Uh, have you ever been rocked? You know, it's always, always fun to rock the other guys. Have you ever been on a team? Have you ever been in a position where you were getting rocked? Where you were on the verge of getting skunked? Or you were on the verge of being embarrassed in some sort of situation like that? Or you got mud on your face? What is that referring to? It's, uh, it's you're face down, right? You're eating dirt. That's what, that's what this is talking about. Look at me at Galatians chapter 2, verse 2. This is, this is what Paul is saying, I think was happening to me. In Galatians 2.2, he says, I went up because of a revelation. I set before the apostles the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Can you imagine, can you imagine Paul worrying, does the gospel work and is what I'm doing with my life now worth it? Can you imagine Paul Thinking those thoughts? Like even someone who had met Jesus in person, whose life had been completely 100% transformed by that encounter with Jesus, even that person, even Paul, sometimes wondered, what good is the gospel? Do you ever wonder that? What good is the gospel? Paul had been rocked by this pre-Galatian situation here that he's describing in chapter 2. And so he had to work through a few questions, which is really what our text is about. Who is the gospel for and what is the gospel good for? Who does the gospel apply to? You know, this is the question of this, these ten verses. Is it just for Jews? Fast forward a couple hundred years. Is it just for the Holy Roman Empire? Right. Fast forward a couple... Several hundred more years. Is it just for Europeans? Is it just for middle Americans? Who is the gospel for? Does it apply to... And then, what is the gospel good for? You know, ever since uh, Freud and Marx kind of uh, interacted with the gospel with us culturally, there's always been sort of a lingering subtext to all conversations about this in, in our culture, which is, is the gospel just a psychological device for emotionally needy people? Or is it just nice for you to have in your back pocket when you're going into seasons of loss? When you lose something, oh, then I'm just so thankful for the hope of the gospel, but the rest of the time, it's sort of like, well, I don't really need it for that. Does the gospel, what does the gospel work for? What is it good for? Who is it good for? If you look at Galatians chapters 1 and 2, as we we come into chapter 2 here this morning, uh, Paul has been working to establish that there's only one gospel. Not that there is another one, he says. There's one gospel, and that that one gospel is the gospel from God. But the question this morning is about about the relevance and significance of the gospel to our lives. Sure, there's one gospel. Okay, we all agree with that. Oh, and yeah, the gospel's all from God. We believe that the Bible's from God, that this is God's thing. But does it matter to this in my life? Is it, could it be applicable to that person over there who I'm worried about? Who is it good for? What is it good for? 
What kind of people in what kind of situations benefit from the gospel? Is there fine print in the gospel? You know, we go to chapter 1, verse 4, and Paul lays out a brief summary, one of these earliest, briefest summaries of the gospel that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. Is there an asterisk at the word our? And then you go down and you read the fine print. Well, not applicable under the following conditions, right? No, no pre-existing conditions. You have to have $50,000 in the bank. You have to have a BMI of 30 or more. I remember talking with a friend of mine in church who, who was, he was, he was worried, he was, he was laboring under a sense of bitterness and grief, thinking that the gospel is only applicable to the pretty people. The people who have their act together, the people who've already kind of rounded the curve, and they're in a place where now they seem to be rejoicing in Jesus. They seem to be celebrating the truths of the gospel. That's who the gospel's for, people who already have their act together. Or maybe you're on the other side of things where you say, you know what, I've kind of got my act together. I don't really need God. I don't really need to worry about the truths of the gospel because I'm not starving in Africa. I'm not homeless. Those people need God, and I'll let God give his attention to them. I'm going to, you know, use Google and focus on uh, my, my abilities and my resources. Is there fine print to the gospel? What kind of people and what kind of situations benefit from the gospel? So now let's go into our text, and, and I'm gonna, we're going to do just kind of walk through and get an overview of verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2. But to do that well, let's start just a few verses back. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 16. Paul, we, we, we noticed last week, and we won't dwell on this, but he, he emphasizes in his sort of uh, testimony that he, there, was a, he, there was a lack of a real relationship with the apostles because he wanted to establish that he got the gospel from God and he didn't get it from the apostles. And so look at chapter 1, verse 16. At the end of that verse, he says, you know, when Jesus was revealed to me, I did not immediately consult with anyone nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia. So that's, that's good. That's an important part of his story, and that helps us understand that the gospel is from God. But now we're moving into a different situation where the relationship of Paul and the apostles in Jerusalem, like 14 years after that thing, now we need to understand what is the nature of that relationship. And here's why. It's because of what we see a little bit of in chapter 2, verse 12, where it says, where Paul says there that uh, before certain men came from James, James is one of the apostles there in Jerusalem, and uh, that's a reference also back to Acts chapter 15, verse 24, where James himself writes in the letter from the Jerusalem Council to the churches, he says, uh, certain men uh, claim to be coming from us. Right, so there's these people now out in the Christian world, Jews who had received their Messiah Jesus, and were going out and telling all Gentiles that they too were welcome to enjoy the Jewish Messiah. They just had to become, naturally, Jews. And they were claiming to have the apostles in Jerusalem as their senders and backers. So when Paul's saying, hey, Gentiles can become recipients of the Jewish Messiah and all those blessings, just by faith, they're coming along with a much more reasonable and much more authoritative sounding message, which is the Jerusalem apostles say, you have to become a Jew, Gentiles, in order to benefit from Jesus. So 
What is the nature of Paul's relationship with the Jerusalem apostles? This is a really big question right now. Are the Jerusalem apostles going to back those guys? Or are they going to back Paul? This is a very tense situation. The resolution of which is going to help us understand some very important truths about the gospel that are not only true for that moment there, but are very true and very helpful for us today as well. And I'm going to try to tell this story and try to walk through this with a, with a special emphasis on the tension and the intensity of what's going on in this text. Because the tension and the resolution both are going to help us see the important truths here. So verses 1 to 5, let's just start there. This really, verses 1 to 5 really set the stage for the uh, interaction of verses 6 to 10. 6 to 10 talks about when Paul met with the apostles. 1 to 5 sets the stage for it. And so verses 1 to 5 tell about how, if you look at verse 4, false brothers secretly brought in, slipped in to spy out the freedom we have in Christ so they might bring us into slavery. But he says, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Which sounds good, and yet we know, verse 2, that Paul was worried that maybe he had run or was running in vain. And so he says, I went up to those, I set before them the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles. And so that's the setting for verses 6 to 10. We're going to read all of 6 to 10. And from those who seem to be influential, parentheses, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. In parentheses, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, parentheses, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, and parentheses, And when James and Cephas, which is Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now we see a little bit of this in these five verses, but over the courses of verses 1 to 10, there's four, Paul interrupts himself four times. What is that an indication of in a, in, a, in a monologue? Right? If somebody's making a point, but hang on, let me say this other thing now too. Now let me get back to my point. Now hang on, let me say this other thing now too. Now hang on, let me get back. Right? It shows, it's a sign of intensity, right? Like he's got, he's got a lot of things that he really wants to make clear. This is a very intense 10 verses. There's also, did you pick up on this? Clearly some measure of tension, right? How many times did Paul say, those who appeared to be? Right, if I brought up, you know, Brian and Tony up here and the elders and like, these guys seem like they're, you know, really mature Christians. You know, it's kind of like an eye roll, right? It's, or something. It's an eyebrow raise, at least, let's say. What is, it, and yet, but, but yet he, 
he set before them the gospel, right? So there's some kind of tension. This is an intense, tense scene. Why is it so tense and intense? And of course, the, the, the first big reason, the main reason, is because of the situation that's developing that, that will produce the book of Galatians, which is the question, is the Jerusalem church supporting these Judaizers? These Jewish Christians and doing all their thing. Is the Jerusalem church supporting them? That's what we got to figure out here. The second reason why this is so tense and intense is, like we talked about last week, Paul was trying to kill these guys not too long ago. Has anybody ever tried to kill you? You know, you don't re- it, it always has a kind of a certain freshness and newness in your mind, doesn't it, whenever you interact with them? <laughs> like, so Paul kind of showing up, they're like, that's right, where do I know you from? Oh, that's right, you're the guy who's trying to kill us all that long ago. So that adds a layer of tension. I mean, these are real people, right? So they're just not like, I mean, we sometimes read the Bible and we think that, uh, you know, Paul or the apostles, like they became Christians and just got like a different software download and now they're just like perfect and all their motives are pure. They, they don't struggle with any of the feelings that we have. Like we're the, we're the, you know, delinquent Christians and these are the super ones. But we're all the same. And they're just as delinquent or we're just as super in a lot of ways as them. So... Of course, that's going to be an added note of tension. But I think the bigger thing here, and I, and I really I want to emphasize this, but I don't want to belabor it, which is the much older and super old, super significant context of the ancient, very serious, mandated separation between Jews and all non-Jews laid out in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You know those books' names? Where are they at in your Bible? All the way back at the beginning. Right? Foundational texts. 1,500 years before the book of Galatians. Foundational texts given to Israel from God through Moses saying, be super duper separate. In fact, I'm going to mark you out as special as mine through circumcision and the law and certain days and feasts and observances. And then add to that, those of you who know the history of the Old Testament, that Israel hardly ever did that. Right? So there's all these regular reoccurring compromises and failures to stay separated, which means that by the time we come to Galatians, that separation has become the epitome of Jewish identity. Their nationalism was ultra-separate from the Gentiles. And so now into that context comes verses 7 and 8. The Jewish apostles, the Jewish Christian apostles, and, and then Paul, this Jewish Christian, are now they're saying, they saw that I had been entrusted with the good news of Jesus for the uncircumcised, and it was the same good news message that was given to the circumcised by Peter. And that God was energizing, verse 8, it says that he who worked through, that's he who empowered, he who energized me for my mission, the, the, one, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God. This God empowered Peter and me in the same way Gentiles and Jews this is huge. Imagine back in the 1950s, and I don't know, I mean, none of us are like that old right, or to be able to remember this, but imagine back in the 1950s and the big communism scare, right? 
Everybody, the McCarthy trials, the witch hunting for communists. If all of a sudden some senator had stood up in Congress and said, you know, I think we should let all communists become American citizens if they ask nicely. Right? That guy would have to run for his life. This is, what, this is what Paul is doing. He's saying these people who are diametrically opposed to our way of life and everything about us, we should let them become just like us and get all the benefits if they ask nicely. This is a tense situation. So what's going to happen, right? What's going to happen? What would, you, what would be normal and natural for the apostles, these, these wizened Jewish Christian leaders are they going to affirm these old cultural divides or are they going to go along with this new work of the Spirit of God, supposedly? Like, nothing would be more natural for them than to affirm these old cultural divides. Well, Paul, we just think it would be prudent at this time to focus in on, on our people and to, to care for them. We've got to care for them, Paul. You know, who are they going to back? Are they going to back their fanboys, their mentees? Guys that were in their Sunday school classes? Or are they going to back this guy that was formerly attacking them? Well, Paul, we think that you make a lot of good points. But we also, you know, we have a responsibility to care for these young men. And even though they're misguided in a lot of ways, Paul, yet they're ours. And, and we, wanna, we, wanna, we don't want to offend them. We don't want to hurt them. We don't want to run them off. But nothing would be more natural than to tell Paul to go pound sand and to back up and, and circle the wagons here in Jerusalem with, for these Judaizers, with these apostles, and yet that is not what happens at all. Because in this moment, all the apostles together discern some very important truths about the gospel. And so the result of this little miniature conference, they say, look at verse 6, the end of verse 6, Paul says, those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. They added nothing to me. And he goes on to explain what that means. They added nothing to my gospel. Verse 7, they saw that what I had been entrusted with, that gospel to the uncircumcised, was the same as what Peter was entrusted with to the circumcised. They added nothing to my gospel. Verse 8, they added nothing to my apostleship. God, the one who works through Peter... For his ministry to the circumcised worked also through my apostolic ministry for my ministry to the Gentiles. And so, verse 9, when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave us the right hand of fellowship. They added nothing, nothing to my gospel, nothing to my apostleship. So we shook hands, said, go team, and got back to work. Here is the outcome of Galatians 2, 1-10, which Paul is making clear for us here and wants the Galatians to understand. One divine gospel. And all the apostles agree together that the one divine gospel is the same for everyone. I love this, I love this kind of verse, this verse, uh, chapter 2, verse, verse 15, where Paul says, We ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. But it's the same gospel whether you're a Jew by birth or a Gentile sinner. It's the same gospel for you whether you're the one to whom Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy came to protect you from these guys or if you're those guys that Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy was sent to the Jews to protect them from. 
Whichever group you're in, it's the same gospel for you. One gospel for all. And so for Paul's ministry and for the Galatians, the implication is that the gospel works for everyone, everywhere. And since the Spirit has preserved this for us to read today in our time, we might add one more word to that, which is to say that the gospel is good news for everyone, everywhere, always. The gospel is good news for everyone, everywhere, always. I wanted to to emphasize the tension here and give you a a sense of the size and significance of this this moment of coming together between the apostles. Because, you know, we live in a world where we think these are really significant differences, all the different differences that we we would carve up our society with. That category, this category, those people, these people. But I want you to understand that no greater difference can be imagined than the difference between Paul and the apostles, between the Jews of Jerusalem and the Gentiles of Galatia. No greater difference then can be imagined than that difference. Or if that's not significant and clear enough for you, go in your mind to chapter 3, verse 28. Here in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek. Neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. We're talking, about, we're talking about racial, national, political, class, gender. We're talking about every conceivable difference locked up in those three pairings. And the message of chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 is that the gospel is unaltered to all of those people in all of those places with whatever they're facing. The gospel works the same in all of these places. The gospel is good news for everyone, everywhere, always. This can be a little bit confusing for us sometimes. You know, even just in Palmyra, we've got Methodist church, Lutheran church, Bible church, right? There's Presbyterian churches. There's all these different kinds of churches. And it can be confusing to say, well, which, which gospel do they have? All of these Protestant churches, you know, the ones that are preaching the gospel are preaching this one same gospel. There is one gospel that has existed across all time and works in every single culture. In fact, I want I to make this very clear. That the message of Jesus brings truth, hope, and beauty has to billions of people over thousands of years in every single culture on the planet. Every single culture, right? whether you're in, uh, among the fisher people of Indonesia, whether you're in the jungles of South America, whether you're in the s- snowy mountains, uh, you're a Norseman, right? or wherever you're from, wherever your people were, when they heard the gospel for the first time, they, they saw there, there's truth in that message that our religions and our cultures were never able to provide me with. There's a hope wrapped up in that message of this Jesus that that my religion could never offer me. And I could never live life with certainty because I didn't have that. And there's a beauty to it that we were always just a step shy of. Every culture across thousands of years of recorded human history, billions and billions of people 
have received the message of Jesus with joy. Everyone, everywhere, always. Just in the story of the Bible. Hagar, the Egyptian slave sent into the wilderness to die, finds the hope of the gospel for her. Ruth, the Moabite widow, who leaves her homeland in utter destitution, finds the hope of the gospel for her. Naaman, the Syrian general, who was given a death sentence when he was diagnosed with leprosy, found in the gospel hope of Israel, hope for even him. We go into the New Testament, we think about Cornelius, the Roman centurion, the powerful man, and Onesimus, a Roman slave, a nobody. Both of them find truth, hope, and beauty that they had no access to apart from the message of Jesus. We move into the modern world. We think of our Iranians under the Shah. We think of uh, Amazonian tribes just emerging into the modern age. Chinese communists. Everywhere you turn and look, there are people there who are receiving the message of Jesus with joy. There is something, there is an essential, unfaltering human longing that is only quieted in Christ. The message of that grace is the only thing that brings us into a place of peace. So Paul's question here, his concern in verse 2, was I running in vain? It's a question of the significance and relevance of the gospel. And that's a question that we struggle with. But we, like Paul, can run without that concern. We can run with confidence. We can run with confidence. You know, sometimes I, uh, I feel like I run my Christian life. Maybe you feel like you run your Christian life. The way that uh, I, I was, ru- I grew up uh, jogging sometimes in preparation for sports. And um, my home in Detroit was situated in a, uh, a, a one square mile block. It was one mile on all sides. Uh, sidewalk the whole way, you know, stop signs and stop lights. It was just very proscribed. I could put in, uh, you know, my disc man and my walk man or whatever and, and jog it and not worry about it. And then I went to a college in northern Wisconsin and it was all trails in the woods. And, you know, if you've ever done any jogging, uh, the first time I came into the trails in the woods, you kind of come up to a, there's all these different forks in the road, right? There's these four forks in the trail and you're, and then you kind of do this for a second, this is how a lot of us live our Christian lives. What kind of, I don't know if the gospel is going to work for that situation. I don't know if, if I should share this with them. I don't know if, I, if this is something that Jesus should be involved in in my life. And we hesitate and we don't run with confidence. We worry that we're running in vain. And what Paul discovers here for himself and for us is that the good news of the gospel is for everyone, everywhere, always. The gospel is always relevant in significant ways. Always relevant in significant ways because of who Jesus is and because of what he did. Who is Jesus? He's over all things. So that means that if there's a thing, he's over it. What did Jesus do? He did all that everyone needs. And so if there's a problem... Somehow, Jesus is here to help with that. So, I would like to encourage all of us to interact with the gospel the way that the apostles did at the end of this section. They, it says that they perceived the grace that was given to Paul 
and they gave him the right hand of fellowship. Give the right hand of fellowship to the gospel. I'm I'm saying this is attaching your strength to the gospel because Peter, James, and John, they, they gave the gospel their strength and their support. Paul, Paul drew strength from the gospel. So first of all, lean on the gospel. This is Paul's example. Lean on the gospel for strength. You know, whatever it is that we're facing right now, are, are we we're running out of diesel fuel or something? Or maybe you have a difficult marriage or maybe, maybe you, you, you've got all these anxieties right now in your present moment or, or you've got all these lingering uh, problems, these abuses from your past that just don't, you can't shake. Or there's some sort of fear in your future that is pressuring you. Whatever that thing is, let the gospel serve you. Look with me at verse 8 one more time. What Paul says, he says that God is working through Peter, energizing, empowering Peter for his ministry, is the same God who is working through, energizing, powering me for mine. God wants to power us with the gospel. He wants to give us strength. He wants to give us energy. He wants to give us power through the gospel word. The gospel is good news for everyone, everywhere, always. That means that Jesus will help with everything that comes up in my life and yours. Jesus will help. So lean on the gospel for strength and lend the gospel a hand. This is the example of the apostles. Notice the first thing he says in verse 9, though. It says that when James, Cephas, and John perceived the grace... So I'd like to start there. Perceive the grace in your life. Perceive the operation of grace. Now, this is not just uh, supporting international missions. Where in your life are there people who are serving the gospel, who are trying to? Parents caring for their kids. Husbands and wives working together to get to know Jesus better. People working here in church or outside of church. Support those things. Pay attention to it. See it. Perceive that grace. And then support it. Encourage it. Give it a hug. Buy it a coffee. Tell people about it. Give it your right hand. Give it your strength as well. And lastly, also personally. Personally, you lend your right hand to gospel work in your life. Give it your strength. Friends, we have what every person needs. We have what every person needs. You know, they might not see it. We can't make them see it. But perhaps life will, as it seems to do, uh, give them an opportunity to reflect. Perhaps life will um, rock them. And perhaps you can be there for them then. And when that happens, or if that's happening in your life and in some relationship, I want you to know that the good news about Jesus, that He gave Himself for their sins to rescue them from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, that the good news about Jesus, that message, is what they truly need. And if they're ready to hear it, it's what they're going to want as well. That truth, hope, 
beauty that they've been living without. Sometimes even the people like us who sing Jesus' praise and give thanks for the gospel, sometimes we can wonder as we go out there and we interact with the unbelievers at work and with our unbelieving family and friends and and we've got our gospel and we begin to stop running with confidence and we can wonder, what good is the gospel for me in this situation? What good is the gospel for them and their stuff? The gospel is good news. It's good news for everyone, everywhere, always. And so to start with, the message of Jesus is good news for you here today with what you're facing. So let's just take a moment. Ask the Lord to bring that goodness. Ask Jesus to help you see his goodness in relation to your situation, and what you're going through now. All right, so let's take a moment, ask the Lord for that, that help, that insight, and then we'll pray together. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and what you've done for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you that you are over everything. You are over everything in our lives. You are over everything in life. And you are over all these things with grace and kindness and mercy, with wisdom and love and power. And so you are over all of our lives, over all the things that we're struggling with or worried about, hoping for, afraid of. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask your help now that you would, you would pour out the Father's love through the strength and might and wisdom of our Lord Jesus. And would you energize that in our lives? Help us to draw strength from the gospel and to be a people strong in the message of Jesus. Father, would you pour out your grace deeper, further into our lives and increase gratitude in our spirit for you. In Jesus' name, amen.